Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a while back ago, we had on the podcast Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He wrote the book On Killing, where he goes into detail about the psychological effects that killing has on soldiers and law enforcement officers. And, and since his book, there hasn't been too much else written about the topic of killing in the context of war. I, I imagine because it's an unpleasant topic to think, research, and write about. But our guest today has recently published an Amazon Kindle book called The Kill Switch, in which he interviews and talks to soldiers and veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and asks them what it was like to kill and what effect it's had on them in their lives after their service. Our guest is Phil Zabriskie. He has spent a, nearly a decade working and doing journalism overseas. He has uh, covered both Afghanistan and Iraq, along with news and events in Pakistan, Israel, the Palestinian territories, Indonesia, and the Philippines. He's been a staff writer for Time Magazine. He's written for the National Geographic, the New York Magazine, Washington Post, and he recently, again, his book is The Kill Switch, and that's what we're going to talk about today. A really fascinating discussion. So let's do this. Phil Zabriskie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So your book is The Kill Switch. It's about killing in combat, particularly in the, the recent Afghanistan and Iraq wars. But can you tell us about your work that led up to this book and what caused you? Was there something specific that caused you to write this little Amazon Kindle single? Sure. Um, I, I had not set out to cover conflict. That wasn't my intention. To, and I don't think of myself as a war correspondent in any, any shape or form. It just so happened that I, I think like a number of people of my generation, so to speak, got caught in this slipstream that happened after September 11th and led to more stories that that uh, had to do with conflict. So I'd been spending time in conflict zones in a host of different countries, um, looking primarily at how people were affected by what was going on around them, and, and primarily civilians, the people who were living through it. And I went to Afghanistan first and then later to Iraq and, and mainly was unembedded. I wasn't doing military. Uh, I wasn't focused on the military, but trying to cover the broader story. Um, and this is when I worked for Time Magazine. So I was part of bureaus in these places and part of teams that were collectively trying to cover these things. Um, but I did on a few occasions spend time with the military and did, uh, especially 2004, when uh, the war was really turning, um, wind up in some firefights and saw some people who were wounded and killed saw soldiers and Marines um, coming back after being in firefights and, and got a sense of how they responded and how what had just happened or what had been happening over the previous weeks or months was was affecting them or weighing them. 
Um, I saw some instances where civilians got shot. Uh, one in particular was a, a man who got shot in the face when he drove through a checkpoint, um, and probably out of panic. And the guys who shot him were incredibly distraught. Um, so, you know, there was there was a whole range of things going on uh, that, that very clearly showed there was there was much more than just what happened on that day. Um, and uh, and I did one story in particular about combat stress, which was um, an effort it had to do with uh, in part an effort the military was making to put counselors closer to the front line so they could talk to guys as things were happening in case anything brought, uh, came up that might make them less combat ready or might be particularly troubling, whatever whatever the uh, the case might be. Um, so the psychological issues in the moment and beyond were, were very much on my mind. And then later years, I you know, went back to Afghanistan several times. I spent time in Israel and the Palestinian territories, including Gaza um, and some other places touched by conflict. And and even when the wars were over, ostensibly, you could still see the traces of them. You could see the impact. And it was quite clear that they would last far beyond the time when the, the last bullet was fired. And when I moved back to the States um, a few years back, you know, I, I, I was always reading and watching the coverage of the wars, and, and there was amazing work done and some great books, great documentaries, things like that. But but oftentimes it felt like something was missing. And to me, that, that piece that miss, was missing, especially in coverage of the U.S. forces over there, was the killing. Um, it, it seemed like it was not talked about as much as it was being done. Uh, it seemed like a real a real blind spot. You know, I had myself gotten married and had a daughter, so I wasn't about to go back to these conflict zones. <laughs> um, but but looking at this question gave me a way to continue to address it, you know, because I, I did not feel done with it. I didn't feel it was done with me, so to speak, but um, I wanted to keep working on this, and this was a way of doing it. Uh, and then I got lucky in that some of the people I contacted were, were willing to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that the only other book that I'm aware of that goes into the psychology of killing is um, David Grossman's book on killing. Um, but you know, for the most part, people don't like to talk about this aspect of war. You know, wh what is that? I mean, it, that's, that's, that's why we go to war, right? I mean, that's sort of like, we, we try to avoid conflict and we want to avoid it, but in the end you're there to inflict harm on the enemy. So they stop inflicting harm on you. What's with the reluctance, uh, particularly in modern times of talking about that? I think it's, it's psychologically, it's a very dark subject. I mean, it's it's not the easiest thing to to look at, and and I know that my wife could tell you this over the times I was time I was really um, deep into this stuff. I, I wasn't in the greatest mood, and, and it certainly affected me. I think as uh, you know, political leaders, they're not going to talk about it because they don't really want that piece of it being considered. Uh, if the public's trying to decide, are they for this or against this? Uh, even in the military, they don't talk about it all that much because at least the psychological piece of it and, and the potential for, uh, for for its lingering afterwards because, you know, they, they might lose some people and, and, and it, it just kind of gets in the way of doing the job in certain ways. So um, all of that combines and some other factors as well. It's just it's just something that gets left out, you know, and I, I think also a country is probably not terribly um, anxious to uh, look at the killing it's doing because you can say it's you know this soldier or this marine or this navy seal but in a way you know they're fighting for us they're they're, they're fighting in our name so it's, it's kind of all of our, all of us are involved in it one way or another yeah um so in in your your book you you mentioned the study it's a very famous study 
done by um, done in World War II or after World War II by S.L.A. Marshall. And the conclusion of that study is that 75% of soldiers during World War II or in combat never fired at the enemy. And they either fired over the head or just didn't even aim. Um, in recent years, I mean, those numbers have been called into question um, and that it wasn't that high. Um, but have there has there been any updates, updated studies on the reluctance of soldiers to fire uh, at the enemy? Not that I know of, but I mean, if you look at just um, and and I, you know, of course, know about the controversy you're talking about. I, I mentioned Marshall in the story. I didn't really get in. I mean, I mentioned that there's controversy about his numbers, but I, I didn't really want to get into it all that much because I'm not really qualified to judge his his uh, his work. But I did say that you know, even if half of that number was true, in a war against you know Adolf Hitler's Nazi soldiers, that's pretty remarkable. And it would suggest a, a very strong reluctance to, to take life, especially if you can see someone who's right in front of you. At the same time, though, you know, you look at World War II, tens of millions of people were killed. In World War One, tens of millions of people were killed. And I, I don't know that we, I certainly hope we won't ever have a war like that again. But I, I, I doubt it. I mean, now we're talking thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And then it's a huge, huge number. But you're not having cities that get carpet, maybe outside, maybe in Syria you are, but you're not, you know, largely having cities getting carpet bombed as a matter of course, as a, as a tactic of, of um, you know, as a accepted tactic of, of uh, military strategy. Um, but overall, there's just not a whole lot of, of studies on this sort of thing. I mean, killing in general, that not that I could find or located. There were a handful, but the military, when I contacted them, they said they didn't track how many soldiers kill other people. They didn't track how it affects them afterwards. And, and you know, there's a chance that's not true, but and that they don't talk about that stuff because of the body count um, stuff that, that happened in Vietnam during Vietnam. But it's pretty surprising to me because, I mean, even if, that, like you say, it's part of their job. It's part of what they need to do. So you figure as an organization that wanted to track its performance, they would look at these things. You have Grossman. More recently, um, you know, a, a woman named Shira McGowan, I think is how you say her name, at the San Francisco VA. Or one of the San Francisco VAs has done some studies showing that Soldiers who kill are, are twice as likely to deal with PTSD and other mental health issues as those who don't. Um, you know, it's not not that everyone is going to be deeply affected by it, but I, I had a you know a West Point um, instructor tell me that or phrase it as as killing being the the biggest moral decision one can make and the biggest moral taboo one can break. So it stands to reason that those who killed other people will be carrying something that those who did not are free of. Um, you know, they may have their own catalog of traumatic incidents that they've encountered, but that wouldn't be one of them. And in this past war in Iraq and Afghanistan, with the nature of the, the enemy and the nature of the fight, you also have a lot of people who aren't really sure if they killed somebody or not. You know, they you would uh, come back and, and they would say, well, I think I, I think I got somebody, but they couldn't really see them. And, you know, an IED would go off and some gunfire would come out of a uh, an alley or something like that. And they'd shoot towards it, but they might never see anyone there. So... You have uh, a lot of people who may come home, and even when they get asked, if they're ever asked about it, um, they, they may not be sure what the answer is. Hmm. So we may not know the exact number of, you know, how reluctant, you know, what percentage of people in combat, you know, actually don't fire at the enemy. But it is a high, so the military understands that there is a reluctance to kill other humans. And you talk about what the military has done over the years to train soldiers to prepare themselves to kill. Can you talk about a bit of that training that has developed since World War II? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this being their 
their job and part of the job. I think they've, they've put a lot of effort in the designing programs that will uh, help their charges carried out. Um, one way to put it is that, that they want people getting to combat, getting into combat, almost feeling almost as if they've been there before, like it had happened before. So whatever they have to do is a series of, of uh, you know, learned memories and, and habits more than trying to figure something out for the first time. So back in the training, when that starts, almost from day one, um, there's a process where the military is creating a context in which killing and dying will make sense, um, and then also training in the mechanisms needed to carry it out. So you might have, um, or you do have language being a big part of it, where, you know, and even in boot camp, uh, an order will be given, and, and, and you know, instead of saying yes, they'll say kill, like, you know, run that hill, you know, kill, run that, you know, that's that's the response. And there's a lot of talk. Are you a killer? Or, you know, can you be a killer? You're not a killer, and, and that sort of stuff, where it sort of becomes everyday language, um, and and it normalizes something that would have, I think, been very abnormal prior to that. You know, there's jokes that kind of devalue life a little bit, and, and again, make it uh, almost like a, a softer, softer cell. And then you have chaplains and superior officers who are on hand to talk about some of the philosophical or even religious aspects of it, you know, just the distinction between thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not murder, you know, how the, how that, if, if it's thou shalt not murder, then there's some space to kill in the right contexts. Um, and to say that, that killing can be protecting, uh, an act of protection, whereby you protect the guys you're with, but also perhaps even, you know, you kill more, you end the war sooner, fewer people die, things like that. Um, and that it all fits into this warrior ethos where, where uh, it's part of the duty, part of looking after each other, part of upholding the the, the, uh, the oath they've taken. And then at the same time, you've got the, the physical aspects, learning to handle weapons, learning to fire those weapons, clean those weapons, become very familiar with them, then firing them uh, in certain conditions, under stress, then specific scenarios, uh, and moving up from paper targets to human-shaped targets to... to um, ever more lifelike facsimiles of actual people. Um, and then even some drills that involve other people playing insurgents. And as the war went on, you had more and more commanders realizing I need to do more than just the basic training. So they would call in specialists who could create villages with fake insurgents and they would, uh, you know, special effects and bombings and sort of uh, things like that to, again, make it feel like they've been there before. And one of the units that, that I looked at in the story, or one of the, the main the main guys was was in the Third uh, Battalion, Fifth Marine Regiment, um, which fought in Fallujah in 2004. And they, before they deployed for that battle, worked with a Hollywood studio guy who made this kind of village. And they had a, a Vietnam veteran and a guy who worked with the New York Police Department for a long time come out as well and talk to them about urban combat in particular and how to conduct themselves in that specific environment. And he had. Uh, this mantra that he gave them, which was slow is smooth, smooth is fast, never make an uncover move, and see the motherfucker and kill the motherfucker and quit thinking about it. And all of that was designed to say, you know, don't panic, remember your responsibilities. If it comes to that, just take care of business and, and carry on. And I've heard, and, you know, I know Grossman has said that hunters have a leg up on this because they maybe have had an experience of having killed a, another being before. And that makes some sense, but I think it's it's kind of limited um, or, you know, only applicable to a, to a point when you're in these actual places and there's actual people in front of you. I thought it was interesting. You highlight one of the soldiers who killed an insurgent and he talked about it like it was like it was a training exercise. He saw the target, 
and he just sort of like habit reflex came in and he just followed through like it was like he was back in the states training for this and that's what it was like right yeah he said he raised the rifle took the shot then lowered the rifle and looked for the next target and i think his exact words was it was like a 25 meter target at that moment and then it was it's only later on when he was looking back at it did he think like oh that was actually a person hmm. So throughout the book, you talk to several soldiers and veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan war about their experience on killing. So my first question, how do you bring a topic up like that? Like, how do you, how do you broach the subject with a, with a soldier on that? Um, you know, in, in this case, it, I think it made a huge difference that I had been over there and that I'd met these guys before. I, you know, I'm not going to claim we were from friends or that I knew them well or it spent, you know, there's a lot of people who spent more time over there than I did and a lot of people who were in many, many more firefights than I was. But just even having some experience and knowing and them knowing they saw you there, like in a way I'd gone to their place of work to learn about what they did. Um, that I think that engendered a level of understanding that was was very uh, helpful. And then, you know, really I just asked them. I was very upfront about what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to you know, pretend I was talking about one thing and then ask them about this. I was very unclear that I understood it was not a small thing to be asking them to discuss publicly. Um, and then, uh, you know, I said that I just wanted to look at this squarely and soberly. I didn't want to make too, you know, I didn't want to sensationalize anything. I didn't want to say, oh, this is crazy. People are killing, they're bloodthirsty, whatever. I just wanted to understand how this was playing out for them when they were deployed and then afterwards. Um, and I think something about that, that, you know, existing trust was, I guess, made them feel somewhat comfortable or at least willing to try to do this. And then I would go do the interviews and do long interviews and often in, in many cases, and there wasn't really any one kind of answer that would come out when I would ask them about this specific stuff, but, um, they were frank and they were forthcoming and, and in certain instances it almost felt like they, they wanted to talk about it, you know, like they were glad to have the chance because there'd been so little opportunity before other than, you know, maybe they're on an airplane and someone says, Hey, did you kill anyone? You know, that kind of stuff that, that is really reductive and that a lot of guys really hate. Yeah. Was, was there a story that you heard from one of the soldiers you interviewed that was particularly jarring? Um, well, there, I mean, there were a lot of stories and I think there were, there were, you know, a few things that I recalled from my experience that I'd maybe packed away and hadn't thought, you know, consciously tried not to think about for a while. Um, and I think that, you know, at one point, a uh, former command, uh, battalion commander says that when war is declared, guys will inevitably be put in impossible positions where they have to make choices that, that are, are extremely difficult and, there's a there's one guy in the story who um, during the initial invasion, his unit, you know, they were fighting Iraqi soldiers uh, in southern Iraq, and they killed one, and then everyone turned away except for him. He had to sort of watch that spot, and then a kid ran up and picked his gun up and and pointed at the Marines, and so he he shot him, and that was his job. That was within the rules of engagement, um, but it's it's shocking you know i mean there's there's just no way that's kind of right in any moral sense and and everyone knows that um it's not as if uh you know and, and for, the, for some of those reasons he had trouble even telling anyone about it for a long time you know he didn't tell the other guys that day he didn't tell them you know because it just felt wrong and, and when guys were all excited and they felt like they were making progress towards baghdad and they were carrying out their mission as they were supposed to 
even some guys who would say, yeah, I took out a, you know, a nester, I took out a sniper, I took out this or that. And he wasn't, he said, I'm not going to say like, I just took out a seven year old. Um, so, you know, and it also became clear over time, like how much that weighed on him too. So I, you know, stories like that are, are I think, uh, implicitly going to be the most jarring, but there were, there were quite a few others that are shocking in, in different ways as well. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom, made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom, made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah. You talk about in the book how one philosopher calls those sorts of decisions uh, and the effects of them uh, a moral wound and not necessarily a, a psychological wound. Because some of these guys, they don't have any really PTSD, but there's something something that's bothering them. Um, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, what are, how has their experience in Afghanistan or Iraq affected them in their post-military life? And how are they dealing with what they did there? What, what's the common response there? You know, I, I, I tried to resist the, I knew I couldn't, I couldn't answer those questions like in terms of the military or in terms of veterans. You know, I, I, I in part tried to focus on a couple of specific people because I knew there was, it's going to be different depending on who you're talking to. And it's going to be different um, depending on their circumstances, how they came back, when they came back, what they did afterwards. Um, you know, when you talk about uh, moral injury, the, the term that, that was coined by Jonathan Shea, who wrote a book called Achilles in Vietnam, which is a, a terrific book about what happens when, when the process of coming home, of being in war and then coming home. And, and um, that's when you have a situation where something you did so thoroughly and deeply transgresses your sense of right and wrong that it is akin to an injury, a psychological injury um, that can be in some cases debilitating because you sort of walk around thinking, wanting to think you are this sort of person or that sort of person, but somewhere in your head you think, oh, I did that thing though, and I, I will always be the person who did that thing. How can I pretend I'm, I'm this or that? Um, and like I say, you know, another another psychiatrist called said that a lot of guys, it's almost they treat killings as like a personal trial and they put themselves on trial in their mind and they have to figure out, was it just, was it right? Was it effective? Was it in some cases, you know, some might be thinking in the long run, was it worth it? And how that they judge themselves on that scale can matter as well with, with the two guys that I focused on, you know, one, um, who was in the two five Marines, Ben Nelson, he was wounded and he was wounded in an incident where everyone else in his home was killed when they were ran by a car bomber in, um, uh, November of 2004. So he well, he went to Germany for treatment. He went back to D.C. for treatment, or Bethesda, Maryland for treatment, and then back to the West Coast where uh, he was based. And he was almost by himself. I mean, he was still connected to the to the Marines, but he couldn't fight. He couldn't be part of his unit. He and you know his best friends and his commander, his company commander, had just been killed, and he blamed himself for that. His commander told him not to shoot at the bomber. Explicitly said, "Do not shoot at that car," but he still felt that it was his fault in part. And so just his own surviving was, was, uh, an affront in a way. Um, so he was, he was a bit adrift and, and he struggled a lot and he, he's, it's taken years for him to get right with certain things. And then only finally did he get some help from, from a, uh, you know, very attentive and, and from what I can tell quite insightful counselor through the VA, but this was just a couple of years ago. 
Um, meanwhile, the other guy, Brian Chantage, he 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 was he'd been scheduled to rotate out of um, Iraq before the Battle of Fallujah in late 2004, but he talked his way into staying with his guys because he wanted to lead them into that battle. But towards the end of it, he he they, he was actually sent home according to his orders, and it was you know two days maybe of plane rides and car rides before he was back in an, in the Baltimore airport with the same boots he was wearing, you know, in Fallujah just days earlier, um, with some of that same dirt and some of that same blood on them. But he went, he stayed in the military. He went, he had uh, an instruction role, uh, role as an instructor at the basic school. He had other roles, um, in the, in the following years, and then eventually worked at the Naval Academy as a, as a company commander and almost like a mentor in a lot of ways to midshipmen, the, the, the cadets there, not the cadets, sorry, the midshipmen at the Naval Academy, who in all likelihood were going to be going to war at some point and be leading other men. So he had a structure around him that I think was extremely helpful. And then eventually these midshipmen started asking him questions about his own experience, which provided a form in which he could talk about these things and look at them himself and consider them. At the same time, you know, he he also was going 100 miles an hour all the time, as, as he admits, um, his marriage fell apart. He says it was his fault. He kind of neglected his family to a certain extent. Uh, he, he, and later he said he was affected by, he didn't want to say he had, he, he didn't say he had PTSD or something like that, but it, he said he was affected by what came out of his combat experience in a way that he needed to get a little bit of help. And he did get some help, but it was all within the military structure, which I think was extremely important and, and very beneficial for him. So I, I guess a lesson from there, I guess, would be that don't, let these soldiers be by themselves, keep them in some sort of structure when they get back? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of these guys are like John Tosh is a career soldier. He was in 20 years. He only recently retired last year. Um, he's, he was, he was older when he went to battle. So he had a bit more of a maturity about him, a bit more ability to put things in, in a broader perspective than some of these guys who are 19 or 20, but then, you know, many of them do their service and they're out and then they have to go find other things when they're in their early 20s uh, or mid-20s maybe. And doing these things in isolation is, is really difficult. Um, doing things where, because you're already in a situation where what happened, what you were just doing over there makes little sense over here and the contexts are so different. Like that alone can be jarring. Yet you're you're walking around this this world wherever you are you know you're in your car you're at the mall you're at the in the, the at your job and people are talking about other things so that thing that was most important to you that that was really life and death literally to you days earlier is is inconsequential or seems inconsequential to the people around you so even on that social context exactly like you know that isolation can be damaging some people like it I mean some people really don't want to talk about it and they're, they've got a way to make sense of it on their own, but the guys who need help, um, you know, having them adrift, and, and here's another aspect of the whole VA problem, which is that having them wait for months for an appointment or just being handed some pills or, or whatever it might be, just these limited band-aid type approaches to, to um, counseling or treatment or even just listening uh, can be even further isolating. So yeah, I guess it goes to my next question. I mean, we know that the military does a lot to help a soldier actually kill, but I mean, it sounds like they don't do too much to help these guys deal with it afterwards. No, not not explicitly. And I and I heard that from a lot of people, soldiers, um, psychiatrists, counselors, you know, various sorts of people who study the military. Um, 
and it's it's hard. Yeah, I, it's it's it just seems like it's not very well. And I don't know if it's just not very well understood, or they don't have the money or the time to pay attention to these sorts of things, or they don't really want guys thinking about them ahead of time. Because again, you you would have a situation where you know, I think from what I understand, I think it'd be really hard to go into a place and be killing other people when you're thinking like, Hey, I wonder if that guy has a family, you know, or I wonder if this is going to bother me later. I wonder if I'm going to have a, I'm going to see that guy's face in a couple of years when I have a dream or when I, you know, smell something similar or hear, hear a truck backfire and there's a similar sound. Um, all those things can make someone hesitate. And if they hesitate, then they might not achieve their objective and someone else could get hurt. Some, you know, uh, things could go wrong in one way or another. Um, and, and they are, as Chanta says, you know, we are a tool of a tool of the government in the violent realm. And that's what they have to be ready for. That's the job they're supposed to do that they signed up for. Um, and, and that they, they take pride in, in doing well at the same time though. Um, you know, you have this sense of moral injury where, how to you know something that that they just did something that that is hard to feel good about over the long term um ben nelson says that that you know in dealing with people he killed he wishes there had been some lessons about it ahead of time like some warning that this might happen because for years he said he was just angry he had this rage inside him he was anxious and frustrated every time he thought about it and he didn't have any way to contextualize what was going on with him so he was just dealing with it on his own, and, and you know he was lucky in that he has a, a kind of incredibly mature and, and steadfast wife who who fought through it all with him. Um, but you know some have not have not been so lucky. Yeah. And 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 the other thing is, as it goes on, it can get harder. You know, you you might want to think that that this gets easier to deal with, like because you care. You know, over time you get used to it, and 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 it starts. Uh, it becomes clear, like what it was all about, and why you know you can contextualize. And a guy like Chantash has a, has a very um, effective and impressive, in a way, ability to compartmentalize things. Like that's what happened there and then, and that's why we did it. And this is today, and so I'm doing this other thing. And but not everyone can do that. Um, if they could teach soldiers that, then that might be better for them. I don't know if it'd be better for everyone else, but but uh, later on in life. Um, you're thinking some of those thoughts, like, I wonder if that guy had a family. I wonder if, 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 you know, what could have been in his life or what happened there or was it worth it? And, and especially with the question of, of wars like this one or Vietnam, where the outcome is, you know, equivocal at best, where you can't say, yeah, we did that so we could beat back the Nazis. But there's some, some real questions about uh, whether it was a success or not that factors in as well. And already now you had, you know, I saw these guys on consecutive days in January and it was days after insurgents had retaken Fallujah and Ramadi. And a whole host of questions came up around that with veterans. And when I asked these guys about it, and again, this, this speaks to the different kinds of personalities involved and the different perspectives, Chantaj said, well, you know, that was then and there and we did our best. And, and it, this is unfortunate that it turned out this way, but it's not going to make me think differently about my service. And Ben Nelson said, well, then what did those guys die for? Yeah. I think that you mentioned a statistic about how it gets harder the longer you go, that most of the suicides from veterans are veterans over 50 years old. So these are men who fought in Vietnam. So, right. Yeah. And I guess they're sort of dealing with their mortality. 
Yeah, I think it comes up. I mean, you start thinking, what have I accomplished? What do I have to, what may I have to answer for, you know, based on whatever, whatever your faith is. And then however you, you know, think you may pass through this life to the next, um, what was all that for? And is this good? And, and does the, does the disenchantment, does the isolation or that, that feeling of, of whatever it might be, does it just increase or does it ever get better? So, um, and, and I think that, that in a way now, this is pure supposition, but I think in a way now it's, you know, the Vietnam war has been supplanted by these wars. So those guys are almost afterthoughts in a way that, that, uh, I would imagine be troubling for them and, and feel quite, uh, quite distancing. So why do you think it's important for civilians to understand what it's like for a, a soldier to kill? You know, I, I think on, on a few different levels. I think there's a political level in which they should understand that when war is discussed or declared, this will happen, that, that people will be sent to go do these things and find themselves in these situations, that then and then they'll have to deal with it afterwards and, and that they should not you know, we all have to take some responsibility for this because it's our country. Um, I think also there's such a casual use of war metaphors and, and uh, imagery and video games and all the rest in popular culture that, that uh, having people take a real square look at what war actually is and what it actually does and what it actually involves um, is important. And I think that, you know, even on just a very personal level, understanding that there are guys like this out there now um, and that it's, it's really not enough to just say, you know, thanks for your service or I support the troops or all the rest. I mean, that's, that's shorthand for, for um, addressing them and addressing these things. Uh, and that if um, there really is going to be support, it should be based in a, in a real understanding of, of the actual experience. And I think also it's, it's, it's good to understand with the training that is done and the kind of, focus and, and kind of lethal energy and, and um, that's required to carry out this job. And this was one of the things I actually liked about American Sniper, that, that that is useful in a tactical sense for commanders trying to carry out their objectives, but at the same time, those commanders have to control it. You know, they have to figure out how do we as leaders um, direct that so it doesn't get out of hand um, in the worst case scenarios. And there have been a few where, where it's turned into to mur to actual murder and just get in, you know, completely uh, goes outside the boundaries of what's even acceptable in wartime. Um, and that, that responsibility is not just on the battlefield. I mean, it, it goes back to whoever declares the war, who plans the war, who says, this is a good idea. We should do this. You know, um, all that stuff is, is, is part of it. So, I think it's an interesting thing, and I was just talking to a friend about this regarding American Sniper, with with you know some of the criticisms that oh Chris Kyle is a, he's barbaric and blah blah blah. You know, yes, but that was his job, and so what does that make the person who sent him there? I mean, I just to me these are these are questions that um, are worth looking at, and if someone wants to understand what war really is, it's uh, I think um, the onus is on them to look at these sorts of questions. Well, Phil, where can uh, readers learn more about your work? Uh, well, I, you know, this is the big thing I've been working on over of late, the, the Kill Switch. It's on Amazon, and um, it's, a, it's a Kindle single, but you don't need a Kindle to read it. You can There's a Kindle app, and you can download that, and you can read it on anything. So I would hope, uh, or, you know, hope anyone who wants to know more about this would, would have a look. 
I did a review of American Sniper for foreign policy, you know, older things. There's some stories on Time or National Geographic, and that can be tracked down. And then I'll, you know, I'll have to figure out what I what I do next. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Phil Zabriski, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate it. Our guest today was Phil Zabriskie. He's the author of the Amazon single, The Kill Switch. You can find that on Amazon.com and download it to your Kindle app. It's just $2.99. Recommend you go pick it up. It's a very fascinating and jarring read. You can follow Phil on Twitter at Kill Switch Story, and you'll find links and references that supplement what he wrote about in The Kill Switch. So give him a follow. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at theartofmanliness.com. And one way you can support the podcast, support the website, is buying something from our store, store store.artofmanliness.com. You'll find t-shirts. You'll find really cool manly coffee mug. Um, We also have our Ben Franklin journal, Art of Manliness exclusive. You can't find this anywhere else. So it's store.artofmanliness.com. I'd really appreciate your support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 